Good morning again. Uh, when I preached here back in 2019, I talked about four biblical themes that I think are important for financial stewardship. And since that's been a while, and I am guessing that none of you brought your notes from that morning, um, I'm going to uh, recap them very briefly uh, with you. They all grow from a theme that says that stewardship is, at its core, a spiritual practice. You know, making intentional choices choices to integrate our faith and our finances are essential for us as Christians. The two can't be divided, and in fact, choosing to make intentional decisions with our money is a practice that draws us closer to the God that we serve. Second, we see that stewardship as a spiritual practice begins because we recognize that God created everything and that everything belongs to God. We're not owners, we're stewards. Everything that we do with money stems from the, the, the understanding, the reality that it's not really our money in the first place. It's God's money, just like it's God's time, it's God's world that we live in. Third, we're called to manage the resources well that come into and out of our lives. You know, the very word steward comes from the words sty ward. The sty ward was the ward of the pigsty. And so the sty ward didn't own the pigs, but was called by the owner to manage those pigs well. And in the same way, we don't own that money that comes into and out of our lives, but we're called by the owner, we're called by God to manage those resources well. And then fourth, uh, we talked about how generosity is an act of worshiping a generous God. And that's where I want to focus our time together today. We're going to walk through a number of different ways that the Bible talks about generosity. And then we'll conclude with what I think is a well-rounded approach, a three-dimensional, 3D approach to this spiritual practice of generosity. But in doing that, I have to tell you that I do love boring Bible passages. And by boring Bible passages, I'm talking about those where you just can't help but ask, why did this get included in the Bible? Why is this passage even here? Well, over the years, I've learned that the best thing to do when you get to one of these why is this included passages is to ask yourself, why is this included? Because there's probably a reason behind it. So, for example, uh, when you get home this afternoon, take a look at number seven. Number seven is awesome. It's, I've, I've heard it called the king of boring Bible passages. I mean, first of all, it's 89 verses long. It's one of the longest chapters in the Bible. And it has this 11-verse introduction, and then it's followed by 12 sections that say, on the first day, on the second day, on the third day, etc. Such and such, the son of such and such, from such and such a tribe, brought an offering. And then it lists the offering. And they are all identical. Each of these 12 sections has five verses that are repeated word for word like an endless loop in a computer program. Why indeed did this get included? Was, I mean, was Moses just filling space? Did he have, you know, have to turn in like a 2,000 word essay or something? What's going on here? Well, I wonder, 
perhaps it's not just filling space, perhaps it reflects the care and the intentionality that the children of Israel had in worshiping their God. After all, this was a God who led them out of Egypt after 400 years of slavery, and they wandered in the wilderness for 40 years, and they were very thankful to this God. So they set up this tabernacle and worshipped, and they, and they kept track of all these things that they brought there. Well, speaking of the tabernacle, that leads to another boring Bible passage. So if you've got a Bible, turn to Exodus chapter 25. Moses has just come down from the mountain after receiving the law, and the chapter begins with God giving Moses instructions for the Israelites to give an offering. It says, this is the offering that you shall receive from them, gold, silver, and bronze, blue, purple, and crimson yarns, and, and fine linen, goat's hair, tanned ram skins, fine leather, acacia wood, oil for the lamp, spices for the anointing oil and for the fragrant incense, onyx stones and gems to be set in the ephod and for the breastpiece, and have them make me a sanctuary so that I may dwell among them. God wanted to dwell among them, and so God asked them to build this sanctuary. And I have never had this happen before, but <laughs> the rest of my sermon isn't here, so uh, we'll have some fun. <laughs> So anyway, so here in chapter 25, there's these instructions on how to, uh, there's this instruction to bring an offering uh, for the sanctuary. And then, it, and then it talks about how, how to do this. It says, have them make a chest of acacia wood, two and a half cubits long, a cubit and a half wide, and a cubit and a half high. Overlay it with pure gold, both inside and out, and make a gold molding around it. Cast four gold rings for it and fasten them to its four feet with two rings on one side and two rings on the other side, and yada, yada, yada to the end of the paragraph. And then it goes on, it says, make an atonement cover of pure gold, two and a half cubits long and a cubit and a half wide, and make two cherubim out of hammered gold at the ends of the cover. Yada, 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 to the end of the chapter. There's like three chapters, four chapters here of instructions on how to build the tabernacle. It's like three chapters of reading blueprints, right? And if that isn't enough, then it goes on, and in the next chapter, in uh, chapter 28, there's instructions on how to sew the priestly garments. It's like a chapter of reading sewing patterns, right? And then if you flip back a few pages to chapter uh, 30, 35, it's going to have in it's going to have the actual building of the tabernacle, and it's basically a play-by-play -play of all the steps in building this tabernacle, and it's more or less a repeat from these earlier chapters that are there, and that's boring stuff, right? Well, but between those two, there's some really exciting stuff. 
If you look at the end of chapter 34, you'll see where they're starting to, um, to, to put these things together. And at the end of chapter 34, Moses calls a couple of people together. I'm sorry, at the end of chapter 35, Moses calls a couple of people together and asks them to, uh, to make the sanctuary. And he, he identifies Bezalel and Aholiab as the two foremen for the crew. And they start to work. And it says, So Bezalel, Aholiab, and every skilled person to whom the Lord has given skill and ability to know how to carry out all the work of constructing the sanctuary are to do the work just as the Lord commanded. Then Moses summoned Bezalel and Aholiab and, and every skilled person to whom the Lord had given ability and who was willing to come and do the work. And they received from Moses all the offerings the Israelites had brought to carry out the work of constructing the sanctuary. And the people continued to bring freewill offerings every morning after morning. So all the skilled craftsmen who were doing all the work on their sanctuary left their work and said to Moses, The people are bringing more than enough for doing the work the Lord commanded to be done. Then Moses gave an order, and they sent this word throughout the camp. No man or woman is to make anything else as an offering for the sanctuary. And so the people were restrained from bringing more, because what they had already brought was more than enough to do all the work. Now I'm wondering, is the treasurer here this morning? Well, if Glenn was here, I would ask Glenn, I would say, has your treasurer ever come to you and said, please tell the people to stop bringing an offering. They've brought too much for us. Wouldn't that be wonderful? Wouldn't that be great if on a Sunday morning throughout the world, people were bringing so much that finance committees couldn't handle all of their generosity? I think that would be awesome. I think that would be incredible. Well, that example, that, that free will offering that the people gave, that's just one of, the, of about six different ways that the Bible talks about generosity, right? And so the first one is these free, free will offerings. The second one is if you think back to the beginning of the Bible and in, uh, in, in the beginning passages in Genesis, you'll remember that both Cain and Abel bring an offering to God. And as best we can tell, there's no real difference between the offering except that Abel brought the first fruits of the offerings from his field, whereas Cain, it seems like, brought the leftovers. And for best we know, that's the, that's the only real reason why God may have preferred Abel's offering over Cain's. It was because Abel brought the first fruits. First fruits is another way that the Bible talks about generosity. Okay? A third way that the Bible talks about generosity is the tithe. Right? And we tend to associate the tithe with the law. But the reality is that the tithe was around before the law. In Genesis chapter 12, there's this story of how Abraham, in actually before Abraham was Abraham, when Abraham was still Abram, how he brings an offering, how he brings a tithe to the priest Melchizedek because he wants to be, because he's thankful for uh, the way that God has been work, at work in his life. And then a couple chapters later, 
later in chapter 18, there's this story of how um, Jacob brings a tithe to, uh, to the priests there. So the tithe was around before the book of, before the law piece, right? Well, because the tithe sometimes gets a little bit of a bad rap, I want to talk a little bit more about that one. Because sometimes people will say, well, you know, the tithe, that was just an Old Testament thing. And, and we live in the New Testament. And, 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 you know, Jesus and Paul, they didn't really talk about tithing very much. So it's not that big of a deal, right? Well, you're right that, that Jesus and Paul didn't talk an awful lot about tithing. But they do talk about it. There's, there's actually just one passage where Jesus talks about the tithe. And in this one, he says, Woe to you, scribe and scribes and Pharisees, because when you tithe, you tithe all kinds of things. You tithe, tithe herbs and, and mints and, and all these things, and you neglect justice and mercy. Well, if you listen there, Jesus didn't say you don't have to tithe. He says, when you tithe, you also have to remember justice and mercy. If you think about it, in the, Old Test or in the New Testament, when Jesus is talking about the Old Testament, he rarely, if ever, actually tosses the Old, the, the Old Testament away. Usually what he's doing is actually upping the ante. He's, he's saying, do more. And so it makes me wonder, you know, if, if we're part of the 1% in the world, which most of us are, I wonder if Jesus might say to us, if you're part of the 1%, maybe it's appropriate to do more than a tithe, right? That's a different way of thinking about it. I, in, in my work with Everence, I get the opportunity to talk with a lot of people about generosity. And for many of them, they view the tithe as a place to start their generosity from, not as a limiting place for their generosity. And similarly, Paul doesn't actually talk about the tithe anytime at all. But you have to remember who he's talking to. Paul is usually talking to or writing to Gentiles. Gentiles who wouldn't be familiar with the notion of the tithe. And so he talks about generosity in different ways. The way I, I describe this is to say it more as like missional generosity. Because you see, Paul does talk about generosity an awful lot. We could even say that Paul is sort of the first plan-giving officer for the church, right? He's talking with people about giving. He, there's actually four different places where Paul writes about what's called the Jerusalem collection. It's where Paul invites Christians, new Christians, to give to an offering to the Jewish Christians in Jerusalem. The Jewish Christians in Jerusalem were under severe persecution, severe poverty, etc. And so Paul invites these other, these other Christians from around the, 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 the Roman world to give to an offering to the Christians in, in Jerusalem. And that's the passage from 2 Corinthians 9 that you heard some of this morning, where, Jesus, where Paul talks about giving generously, giving with joy, giving a cheerful giving. It says, for God loves a cheerful giver. That, that word that's translated cheerful is also the same word that is translated as hilarious in our world. So you could think of that passage as saying, God loves a hilarious giver, right? God enjoys it when the giver delights in the giving, okay? 
Another way that the Bible talks about giving is, is in sacrificial terms. And so you can think about the example of, uh, of Elijah and the widow of Zarephath, who, you know, Elijah is waiting there, um, or it, it's in a severe drought, and, and he comes across this widow who has only a bit of oil and, and a bit of flour. And Elijah says, okay, but, but first... Um, before you make a, a, a loaf of bread for yourself, please give, please give some, some bread to me. And this woman very sacrificially gives an offering to God through uh, the prophet Elijah. And then, of course, there's this widow that we hear about, you know, near the end of Jesus' ministry as he's in the temple with his disciples. And he sees this woman who comes and puts these two coins in the offering. And, and she does it sacrificially. And Jesus says, this woman gave more than all of these other people because the other people were giving from their abundance and she gave sacrificially. So that's another way that the Bible talks about, about giving. And then um, a fifth way that the Bible talks about giving is through almsgiving or um, other kinds of things. So almsgiving, if you think about it in our church, really has a very long history. If you think about almsgiving really started back in the Old Testament when there's these instructions that were given to people to not glean all the way to the edges of the field. They're supposed to leave some of the, 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 the grain there for the widows and the orphans to be able to, uh, to have, right? It'd be sort of like um, telling the farmers among us to not worry about, about, about uh, making sure that you get all the grain uh, into your combine. You know, it's okay to leave what, what's left behind there for others, right? That's almsgiving. And, and if you think about it, in, in Matthew chapter 6, the very center chapter of the Sermon on the Mount, which we as Anabaptists think about as the center chapter in our scripture, there's three instructions that Jesus gives to his disciples. He says, when you give alms, when you pray, when you fast. He doesn't say, if you give alms, if you pray, if you fast. He says, when you give alms. It's assumed that people would give alms. And Jesus talks about these because these three acts, giving alms, prayer, and fasting, were the three central acts of righteousness for Jewish Christians. And so Jesus calls them uh, to do that. Okay? So, um, first fruits giving, uh, free will offerings, tithing, that missional giving, sacrificial giving, and alms giving. Those are sort of six different ways to think about generosity in the scripture. And I think it can be really helpful to think about it in those terms. Because frankly, very often we in the church just talk about one. And the reality is that each of us probably registered with the different ones of those in different ways. For example, um, I'm a numbers person, right? So the notion of a tithe makes perfect sense for me. I just move the decimal point over, right? My wife is, is a different person. For her, her, the notion of joyful giving is what excites her about generosity. And so I think that we can each draw on those different ways of thinking about generosity. So what does that mean for us uh, today as Christians? How do we think about generosity? Well, I said I'd leave you with a three-dimensional approach, a 3D approach. And so there's three words that I would invite you to think about when it comes to generosity. 
The first one of those words is discipline. I said earlier that, that stewardship is a, a spiritual practice, a spiritual discipline. A discipline is something that we do on a regular basis, right? We sometimes think that we have to um, believe in something before we can act on something. But oftentimes, we can learn to believe by acting on something. So we do something just because we think we should. And eventually, it becomes a part of who we are. I often share the story of, of my wife and I, how um, for us, when we started, when we got married, the notion of giving to the church was not uh, something that we did joyfully, right? We were just kind of checking the box, right? Um, but we saw other people in the church who were generous, and, and, and they gave generously, and so we thought, well, we'd better try it too, right? Well, what I discovered was that over time, when I learned to practice being generous, I eventually became generous. And I think that's an example of that discipline, that giving regularly, that's important for us. Okay? The second... Um, uh, D is a decision. Giving is, is a decision that we make. It's not something that we just choose to do. And so in that passage from Acts, or from 2 Corinthians that, that uh, we read in, uh, in, in chapter 9 of 2 Corinthians, there was the verses that said, where Paul says, now I want each of you uh, to plan ahead on how much you plan to give on Sunday so that when I come, you don't have to make a, a willy-nilly decision. You've already made that decision as to that you are going to be giving, right? And so the third D then is defined. Generous giving is defined, right? And so in defining our giving, that's where we identify in advance what's the amount that we want to give. And I often like to talk about this in terms of, of percentages of our income. So I use the example of the tithe, 10%, right? It can be, you know, wherever you're at, whether it's 2%, if you're like the, Amer the average American Christian that gives about 3% of your income, one way that you can think about it is to say, that's the percentage that I want to give. And that's very helpful when our income grows, right? Because if our income grows, we've already identified what is the percentage of our income that we want to give. But it also works the other way. If our income declines, then we have an opportunity. We know how much we're planning to give. When I was pastoring, I was, I was meeting with a gentleman in our congregation who was approaching retirement. And he said the biggest one of the biggest emotional hurdles that he was facing as he thinks about retiring is that he's not going to be able to give as much as he used to because there's not going to be as much money coming into his life. And I encouraged him to think about it in terms of percentages, to think about it and say, you know, John, you were giving regularly at this level as a percentage of your income. Now that your income is down, it makes perfect sense to, uh, um, to, to give at a, at a different level. So I think that's where that can be really helpful as well. So the three D's that I would like to leave with you this morning are defined, disciplined, decision. Those, I think, are really helpful in thinking about your generosity. Now, from time to time, I will get questions from people that say, well, I mean, that all sounds great, but I want to be spontaneous with my giving. I, I, I want to, you know, just respond to needs as they come along. Well, my experience has been, and the experience of many other givers as well, is that 
that making defined decisions about our generosity actually helps our spontaneous generosity. Because what happens is we make defined decisions about what we want to give, and when we make that a priority, the reality is that we often are much more intentional about the rest of our money in our lives. And we make good choices about how we spend our money and save our money, etc. And as a result, there often is money available to do that kind of spontaneous generosity. So I think defined discipline uh, decision around generosity actually helps us be able to be more spontaneous along the way. So those are the things that I'd like to leave with you this morning. Recognizing that we're serving a God who gave us his son Jesus, who made the very defined, disciplined decision to give his life uh, on the cross for us so that we can live out God's mission and ministry in the world. And thanks be to God for this indescribable gift. Amen. Thank you, Lyle, for being with us today. I don't know about you, but if I were giving a sermon and part of my sermon had disappeared, I would say, okay, you're dismissed <laughs> because I would not have been able to do what you did. So I was going to say, I was gonna, and, and you were trained, so maybe that has part of it too. So very good job under pressure. So we thank you for being with us today. So let's have a short prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this day. Thank you for Lyle. Lord, thank you for his message. Lord, help us to take his words to heart and think about being a cheerful giver and finding joy in our generosity. We pray traveling safety for him as he goes back home. And Lord, we pray that you be with us this coming week. Lord, help us to live a life that shows that we follow you. In Jesus' name, amen.